And again, I'm going to uh, read the whole section. We're going to read from Job chapter 40, verse 6 to 42, verse 6. Then we'll take some time <clears throat> to uh, answer the questions that were on the sheet um, that we handed out or that you got off of the Internet. And then I'll um, say a few things that I've prepared uh, related to this section. But first of all, we'll just read it. You, oh, I guess I will say something before we read it. <laughs> as in terms of setting the stage here. Um, you remember this is the second part of the section of the scriptures here uh, in Job where God speaks to Job. He's already revealed something of his wisdom and power in creation. You remember he goes through what he's made and how he's uh, restrained the seas. He talks about the lightning, the thunder, the heavens, the the constellations, all these things. He's basically asking Job, can you, make, can you make these things? Can you sustain these things? Can you control these things? He goes on and then uh, goes into his providential care of the animal kingdom. Many of the different animals, the lion, the, the ox, the, the uh, wild donkey, the ostrich, many different animals. <clears throat> and again, just bringing out how can you question me, which is what Job had been doing. He'd been questioning God or wanting to question God, really almost uh, accusing toward God in terms of the, the very terrible things that happened to him, all the, the sadness and sorrow and suffering that had been brought into his life. Uh, eventually, Job came to the place where he was if not actually doing it, very close to accusing God of injustice and of being just arbitrary in the way he runs the world. <clears throat> so eventually, after many of his friends had talked to him uh, and told him the wrong thing, Job finally has his audience with God. And that's we started seeing that in uh, chapter 38, beginning with verse 1. We looked at that last time. <clears throat> and basically, Job, after he heard what God had to say related to creation, uh, said, well, I'm insignificant. I'm going to keep my mouth shut. But that was not a sufficient uh, dealing down on the heart level that needed to be done. So God continues to question <clears throat> Job and that's where we're picking it up this evening. So verse 6. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, Now gird up, the loins, gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Or do you have an arm like God, or can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with eminence and dignity, and clothe yourself with honor and majesty. Pour out the outflowings of your anger, and look upon everyone who is proud and make him low. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him, and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them in dust together, bind them in the hidden place." 
then I will also confess to you that your own right hand can save you. Behold now Bohemoth, which I made as well as you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold now his strength in his loins and the power in the muscles of his belly. He bends his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are like tubes of bronze. His limbs are like bars of iron. He is the first of the ways of God. Let his maker bring near his sword. Surely the mountains bring him food and all the beasts of the field play there. Under the lotus plants he lies down in the covert of the weeds and in the marsh. The lotus plants cover him with shade. The willows of the brook surround him. If a river rages, he is not alarmed. He is confident, though the Jordan rushes to his mouth. Can anyone capture him with his, when he is on watch? With barbs, can anyone pierce his nose? <clears throat> can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make supplications to you? Or will he speak to you in soft words? Will he make a covenant with you? Will you take him for a servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you bind him for your maidens? Will the traders bargain over him? Will they they divide him among their merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hand on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, your expectation is false. Will you, be, you, will you be laid low even at the sight of him? No one is so fierce that he dares to arouse him. Who then is he who can stand before me, who has given to me, who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. I will not keep silent concerning his limbs or his mighty strength or his orderly frame. Who can strip off his outer armor? Who can come within his double mail? Who can open the doors of his face? Around his teeth there is terror. His strong scales are his pride. Shut up as with a tight seal. One is so near another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. His sneezes flash forth lightning and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go burning torches. Sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils smoke goes forth as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals. A flame goes forth from his mouth. His, in his neck lodges strength, and dismay leaps before him. The folds of his flesh are joined together, firm on him and immovable. His heart is as hard as a stone even as hard as a lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty fear. Because of the crashing, they are bewildered. The sword that reaches him cannot avail, nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. He regards iron as straw, bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. Sling stones are turned into stubble before him. Clubs are regarded as stubble. He laughs at the rattling of the javelin. His underparts are like sharp potsherds. He spreads out like a threshing sledge on the mire. He makes the depths boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a jar of ointment. Behind him he makes a wake to shine. One would think the deep to be gray-haired. Nothing on earth is like him. One made without fear. He He looks on everything 
that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do all things, and that no purpose of thine can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I do not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask thee, and do thou instruct me. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees thee. Therefore, I retract, and I repent in dust and ashes. So, the account here, I think, of God taking Job even deeper in his understanding of God's character and God's attributes by bringing up some areas for Job to consider. But first, before I tell you what I have written down here related to this portion, I want to see what you thought and wrote down, hopefully, concerning this section. So let's just go through these uh, questions. Okay, the first question. This is the second round of questions that God has for Job. He again speaks to him out of the storm and repeats his challenge, the same challenge that he gave back in uh, chapter 40, verse 6 and 7. But then he asks some other things. Four questions. Summarize the four questions that God asked Job uh, in verses 8 and 9. Don't just read them to me because I just read them to you, but summarize. <laughs> what's, what's he aiming at here? What's God driving home by asking these questions? Okay. Yeah, it was... Uh, Somewhat arrogant on Job's part to say some of the things he did. What else? Anybody else? Would you? Right. Uh-huh. I think that's one of the main points. Are you really capable of, of questioning me? Are you capable of judging me? Are you capable of judging the world? the way I do. Do you have the power and authority and wisdom to really say the things you said to me? Let's go on to number two. What does God challenge Job to do in verses 10 through 14? How could this be both a rebuke and a comfort to Job? Somebody want to try that one? Suzanne. Well, he is invited to speak his mind. However, adorn yourself with evidence. You can't really do that. No, no one can do that. I mean, the kings of this world try to do it, but it pales in comparison to the eminence and dignity and honor and majesty that God has. Uh, so that's a, that's part of what he says, you know. Uh, <clears throat> show yourself to be majestic, Job. See see what happens. But there's something else. The second part here, I think, is even more significant. God is in control. 
Yeah, can you do that, Job? Can you humble the, the proud look of man? <clears throat> Not just some, but all men, all time. <coughs> now, the second part, you know, I don't know if you are thinking along the same lines I am. This might be kind of a difficult part, but how could this both be a rebuke and a comfort to Job? The rebuke part should be fairly evident. But how could it be a comfort to Job? I think that's part of it. Um, And maybe leading up to that is just the idea that Job was very concerned that justice was not being done on the earth. Well, God's saying, I'm going to take care of that. I always take care of that. Now, I don't miss anything. There's no pride that squeaks by. There's no injustice, no unrighteousness that somehow uh, escapes my notice. So that's a comfort. That should be a comfort to Job because that's the thing that bothered him. One of the main things that was uh, a challenge to his faith was the injustice that he felt like was being shown in his life and also he, he looks out in the world and sees it too. God says, I'll, I'll handle that. I can handle that. All right. <clears throat> this next one I think is a kind of a, a, a fun one, an interesting one. <clears throat> then, then he brings up two different creatures to Job, the behemoth and Leviathan. The first is a large grass-eating land animal. The second is a fierce sea creature. Commentators are divided on what these animals might be. Some say behemoth is a hippopotamus and leviathan a crocodile. What are some problems with these explanations from the way they are described? We'll just stop there and then we'll ask the second question. So what are some, what, what are some problems with saying that this first this behemoth is a, is a hippopotamus and that leviathan is a crocodile? from the descriptions were given. <clears throat> tail like a cedar. If you've ever seen a hippopotamus, it's not a tail like a cedar. <laughs> so that, that's a definite problem. Also, well, uh, I better. I'm, ask, I'm asking questions now. I'm not answering my own question. What else? That's a real problem, isn't it? Yeah, you haven't seen many crocodiles like that. <clears throat> Back on, on the uh, hippo uh, behemoth, I think even 19 is somewhat problematic in terms of the person that takes that as a hippo. He's the first of the ways of God. How many people, when you think of a hippo, think of that being the first of the ways of God? Little 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 problematic there. And then Leviathan. Certainly the, the, the section that challenges that interpretation the most is the one that Isaiah brings up here. What do you think of when you think of a, a creature with smoke coming out of its mouth and its breath starts coals on fire? A dragon. That's, that's the natural thing you'd think of. 
What else? Uh, anything else that uh, militates against this? Very common, very common interpretation of these scriptures. In fact, if you have a Bible like mine in the in the note, little side note, that's what it says: uh, hippopotamus, crocodile, and and uh, that is the common interpretation. But I think it's uh, somewhat lacking. Any anything else? You see a problem that okay. Crocodile. That's a good one there. That's supposed to, the weak underbelly is what you talk about with the crocodile, and this one doesn't fit that. <clears throat> now that is one. Now that is an an alternative alternate interpretation. That this is especially with people who hold the what we call the young Earth position. That, that man and dinosaurs were contemporary, they would say this is just a description of two dinosaurs. You know, in other words, what's being described here is something that's now extinct but that did exist back at that time. There's still a little bit of a problem if you take that position with what Isaiah brought up because we normally don't think of these dinosaurs as breathing fire either. Although some... Um, well, let me let me read just so you hear it anyway. Um, Henry Morris is one of the uh, founders of the Creation Research Society. They're young Earth uh, advocates, and this is what he writes: <clears throat> It is presumptuous merely to write off all this as mythology and impossible. To say that Leviathan could not have breathed fire is to say much more than we know about Leviathan. Fireflies produce light, eels produce electricity, and the bombardier beetle produces explosive chemical reactions. The bombardier beetle is a little, little bug that there's two little chemicals that mix together and make a little, little pop noise. Okay, well... I'm just reading what the justification for this position. Uh, all of these involve complex chemical processes, and it does not seem at all impossible that an animal might, might be given the ability to breathe out certain gaseous fumes which, upon coming in contact with oxygen, would briefly ignite. In other words... A fire-breathing dragon. In other words, some some of those uh, dinosaurs actually could breathe fire. That's an interpretation. One one interpretation. One. Okay, so we've gone from some animals that live now, the crocodile and hippopotamus, uh, uh, which seems not to fit too well, to the possibility of uh, these were some type of extinct. Uh, now extinct animal that lived back then, maybe dinosaurs, <clears throat> maybe it may not necessarily have been uh, that dinosaurs were roaming all over the place, but these were some that were still alive, that type of thing. <clears throat> it is significant that there are uh, legends in all the cultures of the world of dragons. There, there's, 
that means something, that people widely separated all around the world come up with this same idea of there being these type of creatures. All right, well, let's, let's go on. Whatever these creatures are, what is the main point of God bringing them up? Okay. In other words, <clears throat> I think this is what you're saying, Michael. Uh, you, you can't even deal with these creatures that I've made. How is it that you can think you can challenge me? I think that's surely part of what God's saying in, in all of this. Anyone else? Anyone want to phrase it a little different? <clears throat> Verse 11, I think, is a pretty good summation of what we're saying. Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole earth, the whole heaven is mine. In other words, I made this. You're afraid of this. Therefore, doesn't that show you a little bit of your right position, Job? <clears throat> All right, well, let's go on because we're still uh, dealing with this section right here, with, especially with Leviathan. <clears throat> Who are the sons of pride mentioned in 41.34? That that's a... Doesn't take long to answer that one. Who, who do you think that's referring to? He looks on everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. This is not hard. Who? What? The lion? It's harder than that. <laughs> What's that? Ocean-going people. Ocean -going people. <laughs> uh, if you leave off the ocean-going part. People. Who, who are proud? People are proud. I thought that one... I thought that would be one of those so-called no-brainers. All right, well, I thought that was the simple part, and now we're going to get to the hard part. <laughs> what creature fits the description of being king over all the sons of pride? <clears throat> What's that, Kay? Yeah, it, that's what it is describing. Did you look up the cross-reference uh, in Isaiah? <clears throat> it's very important to... Look that up. And actually, there's a number of them, but this is the best one. <clears throat> Isaiah 27, verse 1. In that day, the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, with his fierce and great and mighty sword, even Leviathan, the twisted serpent, and he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. So there's the dragon image. Twisted serpent. What's that make you think of? Satan. Satan. That's what I think of. And I think, really, that, that that's the deeper meaning of what God's bringing out here. And we'll get into that a little bit more later. But even the New Testament uses this image for Satan the image of a dragon. 
or serpent. It's not surprising that a serpent would be used since that's the way he first approached Adam and Eve. Let's, Let's look at the book of Revelation. And chapter 12, verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down. Now, who is this great dragon? The serpent of old, who is called the devil, and Satan, who deceives the whole world. So here's this imagery in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, which is a very symbolic book, saying that this dragon is the serpent of old, which is also the devil and Satan. And he deceives the whole world. You see it again, chapter 20. Or verse 2. 20 and verse 2. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So you have this imagery here of a dragon, this serpent, who we're told is the devil and Satan. So the last part of that question, considering Isaiah 27.1, do you think there might be more to this description of, of Leviathan than just a fierce water creature? I hope the answer was yes after you read those verses. <clears throat> There's something more here. It's just, it just doesn't qu- quite cut it to say that God is, after he's gone through these other animals, then the thing that really gets to Job is the fact that he brings up a hippopotamus and a crocodile. I just, <laughs> I just don't think that does it. <clears throat> and I'll say a little bit more about that later. Okay, number five. Does God answer Job's questions concerning suffering and injustice? If so, how? Now this is, I mean, this is really a big question because this is what the book's all about. So uh, it's, it's not probably that easy just to give a one or two sentence answer to that question. But... If anybody wants to, you know, start us on the road to understanding here, uh, that would be good. Does, does God answer Job's question concerning suffering and injustice? If so, how? I think he's definitely saying that it's under his control, like we said earlier. But just the fact that he Okay, Suzanne says, yes, God is answering Job by showing that he's in control, and uh, especially in the area of evil, because if, if, there's, if, if Leviathan especially is a, is a symbolic reference to Satan and evil, then God is saying, I am definitely in charge of this. Don't, don't think things are out of hand or, or uh, out of control here. Um, what else? Seems like he's kind of taking off the eyes off of the humanist mindset that we're all thinking of. Life is about the preservation 
Right. I think that really um, God answers Job's questions not by going through giving him an explanation of injustice and evil. He answers Job's questions by revealing himself to Job, more of himself to Job. This is the end of my message, but I'm going to say it right now. God's answer is himself. By seeing, by seeing more of God, what happens? We see more of ourselves, what we're really like, what our needs really are. And that's what God was doing here. He was, instead of just, you know, uh, trying to give a, a uh, you know, uh, just a word description or a word answer that, that would go to the, just to the intellect, God was going right to the heart of Job here. And by seeing more of me, you see more of your need and that I'm the answer to that need. Number six. Well, I guess we almost answered number six by uh, the way we answered five. What do you think is the main thing that brought Job to repentance? Right. Right. The presence of God is what Job brought Job to repentance. And that's what brings anybody to repentance. Somehow God opening a little more of himself to that person. It's not just hearing the Ten Commandments. It's not just hearing more of what you've done wrong. It's, it's seeing God in more reality is what brings real repentance. The presence of God helped him to see that his previous knowledge of God was very deficient. And he also saw then that his attitude toward God had been wrong in what he'd been saying. <clears throat> see, what was happening here was God was using Satan to bring suffering into Job's life and suffering revealed some needs deep down in Job's life that the good, the good times, the good things that he'd experienced didn't reveal. That was that there was a, 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 a root down there of pride that God wanted to deal with. But the cure for that pride is seeing more of God. That's what brought him to repentance. Well, then, the last question. Would you agree that God's message to Job in this section is basically that of 1 Peter 5, 5 through 7. <clears throat> we'll just read it here. Um, actually, starting in the middle of verse 5. Um, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that, you, that he may exalt you at the proper time. Does that seem like a verse that's appropriate to, to the understanding of what God was doing there in Job's life? Well, I think the answer surely is yes. God was humbling him so that he might exalt him in due time. And God's opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Well, 
All right. Um, I have questions for next time. I'll, I'll put them in the back. But I would. I just want to kind of go through um, some of this stuff we've already touched on, but I thought it might be good just to try to present it here in kind of a capsule form in closing. <clears throat> we saw that Job was finally given his audience with God that he'd wanted all along. Uh, but it did not turn out as he expected. If you remember, he thought he would go into God's presence as a prince presenting his case and, and actually almost demanding God that God would present his case to Job for what's gone on in his life. Now, just as a little aside here, I think it is good to remember that there's nothing wrong with asking God honest questions. You see it throughout the Psalms especially. Uh, there's nothing wrong with asking honest questions and being frank about our grief and our, our sorrow. There's nothing wrong with that. But you see, Job crossed over from that he crossed over the line in what he said to God. It wasn't just questions, it was accusations sometimes. And he got to the place where he was charging God with injustice. And that's obviously sinful and wrong. In answer to all of Job's questions and accusations, God ask him a series of some 50 questions. And those questions were designed to demonstrate the meager limits of Job's knowledge and power. God was basically saying this to Job, if you can't deal with even the very basic things of my creation, if you don't understand even simple things, how can you hope to understand complex things like the way I administer justice, the underlying cause of suffering, and my control over the forces of evil in this world? Those are complex, difficult things. You can't even understand and deal with and explain the very simple things. That's what he was doing there uh, in, in the first uh, series of questions that Job is asked by God. God is revealing something of his creative power um, and his wisdom. In the next series of questions, or, or in that same section, but it kind of changes over from the, the uh, things like the, the uh, clouds and the stars and the ocean and the dawn and the, uh, things like that into the animal kingdom. There he speaks... Uh, in terms of his providential care of all the animals around the world. It's, I, again, I, to me it's like if the whole world's a, a zoo, Job, could you run it? Could you handle it? Could you get all these animals fed and make sure that, you know, the babies are born at the right time and all that? Obviously, Job's out of his league. Job says, I'm insignificant. I'm going to keep my mouth shut. I've, I've said what I said, and now I'm going to be quiet. But that's in, that is not sufficient in terms 
of the work that needed to be done in his heart. So God continues and goes through what we read here this evening and what we've been talking about already. I really believe that the, the, this whole section uh, is dealing with the subject of injustice and evil. Uh, this, this second discourse that God's bringing up. It's not like he's, he dealt with these animals like the horse and uh, the donkey, and now he's bringing up some other animals. These are, this is different. First of all, it's different because these animals have names. They, they have, the name tells you something about the animal as opposed to it's not, it's not just a donkey or a horse or something. These are specifically named creatures, and their names mean something. We'll get to that here in just a minute. So he's, he's going into a different realm here when he's talking about, first of all, he's talking about the pride of man and being able to humble that, but then he goes into these proud creatures, behemoth and leviathan. So <clears throat> I think that he's dealing with the subject of evil here, especially as it's re- represented in these two uncontrollable creatures, behemoth and leviathan. Now, again, what, what I'm going to explain here and, and talk to you about these two creatures is not the common uh, interpretation. <clears throat> but I think it's certainly one we need to consider. I think it's likely, likely that in Job's day, these animals with special names, whatever they were in terms of real animals were also symbols of the power of evil. That's the point I want you to get. I think they were real animals, maybe animals that aren't around anymore, maybe they're extinct now, but what they, more than that, they were symbols of the power of evil, particularly Leviathan. Uh, there's, it's just, to me, it's just obvious that there's more being presented here than God being more powerful than a hippo or a crocodile. Actually, I think what God is doing is he's addressing the big questions that plague Job, the really big ones that bother Job. And he's teaching Job that evil is not uncontrolled and unexplainable, which is what Job is thinking. This thing just seems arbitrary and, 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 and evil coming upon and injustice coming upon people with no explanation why that is. Now, I want to say a couple things here in relationship to what we're talking about. There was a <clears throat> Jewish psychiatrist that was uh, involved in, in the Holocaust. He was uh, in a concentration camp, pretty famous guy a few years ago, named Viktor Frankl. And uh, he said this, and I think it, it's worth considering in relationship to what we're talking about here. He said, despair is suffering without meaning. Despair is suffering without meaning. In other words, uh, suffering is bad enough, but it's far worse when it seems like it's irrational or capricious or senseless. And this was, I think, part of Job's problem. He could not make sense of his suffering, and it was such a 
devastating thing to him, not just the suffering itself, but the fact that he couldn't make any sense of it, that it seemed so uh, irrational that it was actually threatening to destroy his understanding of God. That's what was happening to Job. He said, I can't fit. This doesn't fit. I don't understand. So he was in despair because it seemed like suffering. There was no meaning, no rationale, no reason for this. But as God showed Job more of his sovereignty and his wisdom concerning the world, and especially his sovereignty over evil, Job came to realize in a deeper way than he ever had before that even his suffering had meaning and purpose. And that's a big thing because that can take you through the suffering without bringing despair because there's a reason for it, a good reason. If it's from God, there's a good reason for it. It had meaning and purpose somehow in Job's life. He may not have understood exactly how, but he knew there had to be some meaning and purpose for my life in this, though he didn't understand. He could yet trust God in the midst of it. I read this somewhere, and I put it here in my notes. To know why is not our greatest need. To know God is. To know why is not our greatest need. God doesn't have to explain why he does what he does. It's enough if we know that he cares and that he doesn't make mistakes and that he's in control. He's in control, he cares, and he doesn't make mistakes. We're to live by his promises, not our explanations of things. We can be content not knowing everything if we know the one who does. Now, These things are easy to say, but when the suffering comes, that's a whole different thing. And these, these truths will be challenged. What I just said will be challenged when the hard times come. It takes God's grace, which is what really God was bestowing upon Job here, even in the midst of asking all these questions. This was grace. This was God's grace to Job because he was revealing more of himself to him. And that's grace when God does that. Takes God's grace, which is what he was bestowing upon Job through this further revelation of himself. God was especially showing Job that he and he alone could bring the proud person down and that he and he alone could tread down the wicked throughout the world. Job couldn't even deal with his own pride, let alone the pride of other people all around him and around the world. That takes one adorned with eminence and dignity and honor and majesty. That takes God to deal with pride. God's power alone matches his righteous will. Therefore, he alone is in the position to rule and judge and to pour out the overflowings of his anger upon the proud. And to emphasize that point, he brings up these two animals, Behemoth and Leviathan. Behemoth, if you want to roughly uh, understand what that word meant in Hebrew, it meant super creature, big brute, 
That's kind of the idea of behemoth. Leviathan means twisted or coiled thing. Now, I wanted to read you. I don't want to go on so long here that I lose you, but I did want... Because I'm taking an alternate position on this text, one that you won't see commonly, I wanted to let you know that there are some other people that agree with what I'm I'm saying. (laughs) So let me read a few different comments here. I had to search to find these because mostly you're going to find hipples and crocodiles. But here's some others. Leviathan and Bohemoth behemoth are representatives of evil, of Satan. Job, remember, knew virtually nothing about Satan. He was certainly entirely ignorant of the first two chapters where we're told of Satan's wager, uh, where basically Satan says, if you take everything away, uh, he'll curse, curse you, God. And, and uh, so Job didn't know anything about that. And, and Job did not do that. I mean, it seemed like he, he may have gotten kind of close, but he did not curse God. He cursed the day that he was born, but he never cursed God. Uh, Job, but Job had uh, come very close to it, blaming God for what, in fact, had been Satan's doing. Now he was being told in language of pictures that another being is at work in the universe. This creature is powerful and threatening and fearsome. He's king over all the sons of pride. That's one guy, one uh, different uh, uh, commentator. Here's another. If none dares to challenge Leviathan, what man can hope to stand against the Lord, the creator of Leviathan and his sovereign Lord? Note the description of Leviathan. Uh, Note that the description of Leviathan goes beyond that of a natural crocodile, it takes, a mythical, takes on mythical proportions. In this present passage, the mythical theology of, of Israel's pagan neighbors is being applied to the description of Leviathan as a means of vividly declaring Jehovah's lordship over all of his creation, both the creatures of the realm of nature, such as the fiercely terrifying crocodile, as well as all the spiritual hosts, including devil himself so he's saying yes it's talking about a true creature but it's also talking about something beyond that here's another person the book of Job has already used the word Leviathan back in chapter 3 there it seems to function as a symbol for death Jewish interpreters have been almost uh, unanimous in their interpretation of both Leviathan and Behemoth as symbolic of all that is evil. So Jewish interpreters recognize that. Now, lest we get the wrong idea here, I I got a couple quotes that I wanted to read you. Canaanite mythic imagery was the most impressive means of that ancient cultural setting whereby to display the sovereignty and transcendence of Yahweh along with his superior superiority over Baal and all the other earthly contenders. Although the Hebrews did not borrow the theology of Canaan, they did sometimes borrow its imagery. Here the imagery of Baal's enemy, the sea dragon Leviathan. The problem is not 
one of borrowing mythology, but one of, uh, one of borrowed imagery. In summarizing this view of the subject, L. Lard Harris wrote, we may conclude that the mythological symbols are used in the Bible for purposes of illustration and communication of truth without in the least adopting the mythology or approving of its ideas. In other words, this, this idea of this, these dragons and things, that was in the cultures around there. And just because God, <clears throat> and in the book of Job, the, the mythology, uh, the images are used, doesn't mean that Job or anyone else uh, that was really godly believed in these myths. They were just using the imagery there to bring home the point. Here's something I think is that's significant. <clears throat> Thus, even though the Bible may make allusion to mythology, neither the book of Job nor any other Old Testament has the slightest hint of any belief in any such mythology. Now, it is clear that, that the, the Leviathan is represented as too powerful and ferocious for a mere man to dare to come to grips with. He is beyond the power of man to capture. Leviathan is peerless and fearless. Counterwise, now here's the, the reason that I read this. Counterwise, the crocodile, like the hippopotamus, was hunted and captured by the Egyptians. Herodias discussed how they captured crocodiles and how that, after being seized, some were even tamed. So even back then, the idea that this was a crocodile, that Leviathan was a crocodile and, and uh, Behemoth was a hippopotamus, wouldn't have fit, wouldn't have fit because they, they did kill these animals. They did capture these animals. Just so you know, I'm not going out in, on a wild goose chase here and what I'm saying. There are other commentators that, that take that position. Well, <clears throat> especially for Leviathan. This terrifying monster of the sea, this dragon-like animal, what I think was an earthly representation of the creature no mortal can conquer or control. And that creature is Satan, the proud one, the ultimate proud one, and the one who is king over all the sons of pride. That's, that's what Satan is. He's king over all the sons of pride. So God's final and ultimate question to Job is, are you really able to deal with this monster? Can you handle the twisted, the twisted one, Leviathan? Can you subdue evil pride wherever and wherever, whenever and wherever you find it? Can you, and this is the amazing thing, can you use it in an inscrutable way to bring about your good purposes? That's the real incredible thing can you can you use this evil one to bring about good can you draw a perfectly straight line with such a crooked stick that's what God's doing all the time with Satan well that was the last straw this that was it when God was done talking to Job about Leviathan that was the end of the discussion. He now sees God in a new way, in a deeper way than he'd ever seen before, and he repents, he says, in dust 
and ashes. He sees that God was not his adversary, but that there was an adversary, a power of evil, an evil one that was his real adversary. I am not saying he had a clearer view of Satan as we do with all the information that we have in the scriptures, especially in the New Testament. But he realized that there was something going on in his struggles and in his suffering far bigger than he'd previously thought. There was a power of evil in this world far beyond his understanding or control, an evil power only God could deal with. I just want to point this out in this description of Leviathan especially. Consider how Job is shown how terrifying this animal is. In 14, we're in chapter 41, 14. <clears throat> Who can open the doors of his mouth? Around his teeth there is terror. Verse 21, it says... A flame goes forth from his mouth. 24 says, His heart is as hard as stone. This is a terrifying, ruthless creature we're talking about. He is unconquerable. This creature is unconquerable by any human endeavor. And that God just says that over and over again. Uh, verses 7 through 9. We won't read all these, but, uh, you, you know, take your harpoons. Take your spears. You, you, they're not going to do you any good. Go over to verse 25. He starts naming off all the, the instruments of warfare at that time. The, the spear, the dart, the javelin. He says, you're not going to get anywhere with those things. The arrow, the sling, the clubs. You, can't, you cannot subdue this animal. You can't deal with it. He was unconquerable by human endeavor. But here's the main point. He is totally under God's control. Verses 2 through 5. And these are interesting to think about. He's got a rope through his nose. In other words, God's leading him around exactly where he wants to take him. He can't go. He doesn't go anywhere on his own. He can go no further than God allows. Will he make supplications to you? He has to make supplications to God. Now, think in your mind back to chapters 1 and 2, how this fits, what's going on there in chapters 1 and 2. God's allowing Satan to do some things to Job. But he, he only does that, you know, to even get that far, Satan had to make supplication to God to do that. In fact, it says here, and the, these things, I mean, we're talking about stuff that is really beyond us here, but it says, will, will you take him for a servant? Uh, there's a real sense in which Satan is God's servant. Now, that can be really misused. God, it says, plays with him as with a bird. Satan making supplication to God. God using him 
as an unwitting servant to refine his true servant, Job. That's what's going on in the book of Job. In fact, uh, and, you know, you can go too far on some of these, and some of them don't fit exactly, but will you bind him for your maidens? Leviathan is bound for God's maidens. God, in his wisdom and power, can use even the evil desires of this one whose heart is as hard as stone to further God's good and loving purposes for his church. Well, you you can accept or not accept that, but I think, I, I, I know it's true whether that's there in that verse about will you bind him for your maidens or not that might be a stretch but all I'm doing is taking other other overall teachings of the Bible and applying them to that verse (coughs) what we're saying here then is that Satan's evil work is used by God for his good work that's that's biblical because that's what happened on the cross I know that's right. Satan's hatred of Christ ended up being used for God's purpose of bringing salvation to mankind. Now these are awesome and fearful things that we're talking about here, things that are worth our contemplation but far beyond our capacity to understand. I'll say that. How can we fathom Who can fathom how God allows sin and evil, but yet is not the author of it? He allows Satan to do these things. These were were evil things that were happening to Job. God allowed it. Who can understand how God can bring Satan into the picture as he does in the opening chapters of Job, saying to him, Have you considered my servant Job? While at the same time maintaining... His perfectly, his perfect moral goodness and perfection. See what what the Bible presents is the fact that that evil is real, and it's terrible, and yet God is is sovereign and perfectly good. That's a real dilemma, but that's what God, that's what the Bible presents, and that's what we're looking at here in the Book of Job. To take it, it is a faith position. It's it's it takes faith in God to believe what what I'm saying here. Well, let me close then. I've gone on a lot longer than I intended. What about us here tonight? Are we yet sons of pride? That's that's the question. Are we yet sons of pride um, with this monster Leviathan as our king? Because he's king over all the sons of pride. Or have we bowed to the true king, the king of kings, the king who came as a suffering servant, not, not like the proud one. He came as the humble one. The one who came as a suffering servant to defeat this twisted serpent. Have we bowed to this one who will abase the proud and give grace to the humble? 
So we're in one group or the other. We're either sons of pride with this Leviathan as our king, or we bow to the king of kings. Wherever we are, wherever we are with God in our understanding and thinking, I believe that we can all ask him to reveal more of himself to us. Wherever we are here tonight, that is our great need. As I said before when we were going through the the questions, God's answer to Job was himself. God's answer for each one of us is himself. It's always himself. So if you don't think I'm right about Leviathan or Behemoth or any of that, that doesn't matter. If you just remember this one thing, God's answer is himself. If you remember that out of all of tonight, you remember the most important thing. God's answer is himself. Let's pray. Father, we do, each one of us here that has come to know you, we do want to know more of your way, your word, and your will. We ask, Father, that you'd reveal more of yourself to us. We know that that was the answer ultimately for Job, not a bunch of intellectual answers to his questions, but a revelation of yourself to his heart and mind. So, Father, we pray you would bring us on in our knowledge, our understanding, our comprehension of who you are, and especially for what you've done for us in Christ. We pray, Father, that we would not get hung up on the question of why, but look more to just what you've revealed about yourself and uh, be able to rest in you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.